Welcome to Authors on Tour Live, a weekly podcast for people who love to hear about books from the authors themselves. My name is Darren Fote, and today we are podcasting live from the Tattered Cover Bookstore, one of the premier independent bookstores in the nation, with three locations in the metro Denver area. You can visit www.authorsontourlive.com for a complete list of upcoming podcasts. Wait a minute, it's time to begin. For tonight's event, we have established author Ken Ogunas here to present his newest book, Trespassing Across America, where Ken embarks on an illegal cross-country trek from Alberta, Canada to Texas following the Keystone XL pipeline. Mr. Ogunas is popularly known for his previous title, Walden on Wheels, where he attempts to live in a van to avoid his enormous student debt. Ken is from New York, but he also still likes to call Colorado home, so if everyone could please help me in introducing Colorado local Ken Ogunas. Thanks very much. Thank you so much. Uh, yeah, so I sort of consider myself a, a semi-local author. I've lived in Denver on at least three or four occasions, usually in between jobs, and I just live in my best friend's basement. Um, and, and this is actually, uh, Denver is actually where um, I started this journey, but I'll, I'll get to that in a minute. And I, I spoke with an author friend, and he says the worst part about a book reading is the actual book reading. Um, so I'll, I prefer to tell a little yarn, and I've got a couple of passages um, that I'd like to read. So I decided to go on a walk across America following a controversial oil pipeline. And I had a few questions on my mind. Questions like, has climate change, in fact, put our planet on an irreversible path to destruction? And if so, what is our duty up against something so enormous? How far should each of us go to protect our planet? But more than anything, I wondered was, what am I going to do about the cows? <laughs> so I was going to set out on a never-before-done and sort of illegal 1,700-mile hike following the proposed route of the Keystone XL pipeline, which would stretch from Alberta, Canada, down to the Gulf Coast of Texas. And pipelines, pipelines don't like to follow roads. Pipelines like to get to their refinery or market in as few miles as possible. So that means they like to cross country. They like to go across cropland, across grassland, across private property. So this meant that if if I wanted to follow the Keystone XL, I'd have to do the same. I'd have to walk over Alberta Prairie. Saskatchewan Pasture, Montana Hills, South Dakota Canyons, Nebraska Cornfields, and then down through Kansas, Oklahoma, and Texas. So to hike the Keystone XL, I'd essentially have to trespass across America. And this also meant that I'd be walking by thousands and thousands of cows. And as a suburbanite from New York who's never milked one or touched one or been near one, and who you know knew nothing about cows except that they were bigger than me and faster than me and had horns and gored bullfighters and chased people through Spain. Yeah, I was a little nervous. So I actually got the idea to hike the XL from my friend uh, Liam. Um, we were working in a kitchen in a uh, an Arctic labor camp way up in Dead Horse, Alaska. Um, we were working for the oil industry. We were um, working side by side, cook and dishwasher. And, Prudel, and, and, and Dead Horse 
may in fact be the most miserable place on earth. Um, there's, there's no, it's not like a real town. There's no schools. There's no churches. There's no kids. It's just a lot of equipment and a lot of dudes. I mean, like there's a, a nine to one male to female ratio there. And I know what the ladies are thinking. You know, I'm going to go to Alaska and have options. Um, but uh, we have a saying up in Alaska that you guys should be aware of, and that's, the odds are good, but the goods are odd. Um, so I was, I was a dishwasher. I was 28 and broke and washing dishes for a living. And I can say from experience that when you're 28 and broke and washing spoon after spoon in the middle of the night in a silent kitchen 300 miles north of the Arctic Circle, you begin to question the direction your life is headed in. Um, but I can say this also from experience, and that's the soul must be caged before it can be set free. So when Liam suggested we hike the Keystone XL, which was in the news all the time back in 2011, I dropped my soup bowl um, into the sink and looked at him with what must have been this frightening excitement and said, we must. And after that, um, things started to look up for me. I, um, I hitchhiked out a dead horse. I um, got my first book deal for Walden on Wheels. I had money in the bank for the first time in my life. And, uh, and things were going well, but I wanted to consciously hold on to that flash of inspiration I felt when Liam suggested we, we hike it. I'd like to read a little passage right now. Liam and I had stayed in touch all that time to discuss trip logistics. At first, the expedition, along with most of my other ideas, could have been listed under the category of things I fantasize about doing and probably won't, but are fun to think about doing anyways. We had monthly phone conversations about the trip. It was clear that I was far more excited about the expedition than he was, but by the end of each conversation, he seemed to be re-energized and rededicated. I'd begun to wonder, though, if Liam had the frame of mind necessary to commit to such a long journey. For one thing, he began to question if it would be better to wait another year so we could properly prepare and save up enough money. More unsettling was his suggestion that we don't have to do the whole thing, and that we could hike for a bit, take some months off, and start again whenever we wanted to. Such suggestions were hardly unreasonable but I'd read enough books on real-life journeys to appreciate how reasonableness isn't always a good trait for someone who's about to do something ultimately unreasonable. Still, I so wanted Liam to come. I knew he'd be the perfect traveling companion. He was kind, intelligent, a great cook, and I knew from our Prudhoe Bay hike that Liam had an on-the-ground ballsiness that I wanted to have but didn't, and that this ballsiness was something that we'd likely need on a journey where we'd trespass over private property, steal water from farms, and probably piss off the oil industry. I pictured the two of us trudging across the lonely, wide-open prairie, like Sam and Frodo, on a long, perilous journey. We'd take care of each other, lift each other up when we were down, and perhaps like the hobbits in moments moments of utter hopelessness, hold hands in that tender, brotherly, pre-20th century and not at all gay way. (laughs) I imagined us on a journey of high adventure, escaping gunfire, taking cover from tornadoes, and maybe whispering in a moment of life or death suspense, 
with a hushed tone of poised determination, run. <laughs> so um, I started preparing. Um, I bought a lot of food. Um, <laughs> I've learned a few things about nutrition in the, the years that have gone by. But yeah, I was mainly looking for stuff that would keep energy bars, powdered uh, whole milk, granola, stuff like that. I bought it from the local Whole Foods and uh, Sam's Club. Um, here I am mixing up uh, a big box, a trail mix in my, my buddy's uh, basement. I bought a, uh, and here I am uh, boxing up all that food, and my buddy in Denver, he would mail these boxes to post offices along my route, so I'd always have uh, five or six days worth of food uh, ready for me. I bought a, a, a mapping software program called Topo, and I charted out my route with the aid of some uh, uh, maps I found on government websites, and I'd print out about 75 of these, so I'd navigate by having a compass in one hand and a topographic map in another. And lots of little equipment. I, I bought most of this stuff at the local uh, REI, um, portable solar uh, panel, med kit. I had a, a canister of bear spray up top, um, jackknife for protection, uh, chlorine dioxide for um, purifying the water I'd come across, uh, just things like that. I bought a uh, tarp tent. These are really light tents. Uh, this thing weighed about a pound and a half, and you kind of use uh, trekking poles to hold it up to to save even more weight. Because, you know, when you're going on a long-distance hike, you want to go with as, uh, as little weight as possible. I bought an iPad and a Pelican case, and this was really important because I wanted to share my journey. I wanted to blog about it. And, you know, this would, uh, I could edit photos on here. I could edit videos on here. I had 20 books so I could read at night in the tent. And here I am, uh, ready to go, uh, about 45-pound pack. One, one glitch in the, uh, the planning was Liam, he remembered he was banned from Canada um, <laughs> because of an undisclosed offense he committed in, as he put it, his wayward youth. Um, so this meant that I'd have to go alone. Um, so I want to tell you a little bit about um, the Keystone XL and the Tar Sands because they're, they're both very much related so the Keystone XL, I don't know if you can see it, but there's a dash line, and that was the proposed route of the Keystone XL, which would stretch from Hardesty, Alberta, down to Port Arthur, Texas. Um, so it would start up here, enter into the pre-existing um, Keystone 1 pipeline through Kansas, and then come out through a second um, section of the pipe, where it would be refined here in Port Arthur and... Um, ship to foreign markets overseas. So um, this, just a couple, it's, it's a mess. This whole situation is a mess. So this bottom section of the Keystone XL, that's actually been built. So that's in the ground that was being built while I was walking it. This northern section has been rejected. Uh, President Obama in 2015 rejected it. Um, so that is not built. This orange one, Keystone one, that has been built. So this is all um, tar sand pipeline. So it's um, 36 inches in diameter. It would be buried entirely beneath the ground. And what was flowing through it, it was this stuff called dill bit, 
which is diluted bitumen. And this is the non-diluted bitumen. This is just bitumen. This is like a, a peanut butter thick. Um, it, it smells like tar sands, but it's not tar sands. Um, but it's called tar sands. It's also known as oil sands, tar sands. And it's in this um, place called Northern Alberta. And it, it, what this is, is a mixture of sand, clay, oil, and water. So when it's dug out of the ground on site, it's boiled, essentially, with a whole bunch of fresh water and mixed with chemicals to separate the oil from the rest of that stuff so it can be pumped down a pipeline. This is the tar sands of northern Alberta. This is an enormous area. Um, it's all boreal forest, but beneath the ground is the bitumen and the tar sands. This is 54,000 square miles. So before I... Um, started the hike, I wanted to see the tar sands. I wanted to see where this oil was coming from. So um, I stuck my, I, I took a bus from Denver, I think up to Longmont or Fort Collins, as far as it would take me. And then I stuck my thumb out and went the, uh, the next thousand miles, um, just hitching my way up to Fort McMurray. And when I got there, you can't see the tar sands from ground level. You have to fly above so I, I ordered a small um, tour flight, and I'm going over the boreal forest. It's lush and green and, and verdant and smells of, of, of autumn. And I begin to pass over this enormous tailings pond, um, is, which is more like a lake. It, it looks exactly how it does. It's, it's this gray sea of sludge, a silvery sludge. And this is the leftovers from the refining process. All those chemicals, all that water, all that um, clay and that stuff, they're going into these man-made lakes. And then, we passed, then I passed over this, um, just these vast like soccer ball fields of, of blackness. This is called um, petroleum coke. It's like a pure carbon that's left over from the refining process. And this is burned as kind of a secondary fossil fuel. Then these eerie yellow sulfur pyramids, they don't know what to do with the sulfur from the refining process, so they're just building these pyramids up into the sky. They just, they just look so strange. And I'm, I'm flying um, above this area, and pretty much from one edge of the earth to the other, it's nothing but this, just this enormous mud pit where they're digging into the ground and getting the bitumen. And when, when we landed, um, I said to the pilot, you know, that was amazing. I mean, that was just, it was just immense. And he says that was only 10% of the, the pit mining operation. So what were the, so I barely got to even see it. And pit mining only accounts for about 50% of the extraction methods. So this is a massive, massive um, environmental disaster that's happening right now. And you may wonder why, like, I'm, um, you know, so obsessed with the tar sands and why I'm going so far away to see it. And I think it's partly because I'm from Niagara Falls, New York. Um, just four miles from my boyhood home is the Love Canal. You may have heard of it. It's the site of one of the most tragic environmental disasters in U.S. history. In the 1940s, this chemical company buried a whole bunch of toxic waste into the ground. And several decades later, in the 1970s, families began to experience abnormally high cancer rates, epilepsy, miscarriages. Children were being born with second rows of teeth. Um, so 
growing up next to Love Canal, it just taught me early on what happens when industry gets its own way. So when I heard about what was happening in the tar sands, um, you know, where they're um, uh, polluting these pristine rivers, where they're destroying millions of acres of boreal forest, where all the native communities nearby, they're experiencing abnormally high cancer rates. I did not think of this as some faraway place. I thought of this as, as another home, someone else's home that's being destroyed the same, t- same way my hometown was. So the walk, this is the sort of terrain I'm walking, I'm walking over. Um, and I want to go as fast as humanly possible because I'm starting this trip in late September and I'm worried about getting nailed by winter in like Montana. Um, so I figured, yeah, I'm going to go 20 miles a day, 100 days, get this thing over with. Um, but by day seven... My feet were just an absolute mess. And don't do this. This duct tape thing didn't do anything for me. It just made them look ridiculous. Um, Yeah, I had eight blisters on the bottom of my feet. I had athlete's feet. I had gashes on my ankles. I had this debilitating shin splint injury. Um, And, you know, going into this, I thought I was like the god of hiking. Like, I, I never had blisters. I always, like, outpaced my friends. But that was because I'd only been on, like, a five- or six-day hike. So by day seven, I, I, I learned what it took. In the first couple weeks, like, I'm walking in, like, a constant state of terror. Uh, like... I'm worried about upsetting landowners for trespassing across their property. I'm worried about winter coming. Of course, I'm, I'm worried about these cows. I, mean, I remember in um, it was Montana when I was hitchhiking, this uh, rancher named Doris picked me up. And I'm like, Doris, like, what do I do if a, if a cow charges me? And she says, uh, just look them in the eye and talk to them manly. <laughs> and... When she observed that I was not the sort of person who was going to look them in the eye and talk to a manly, she said, um, when they charge, just step to the side of them, tire them out like that. Step to the side of them. This is not what I wanted to hear at all. (laughs) But I'm beginning to to figure some stuff out. For one, I'm learning how to navigate. I'm using my map and my compass. I'm learning how to use those. And there's a whole bunch of helpful navigation aids. Like when I come across a road, I can see a little pipeline sign like this. And you know those um, like red balls that are in like uh, electrical lines or telephone lines? That usually indicates where a pipeline is going beneath the ground. So I could see those on the prairie, sometimes miles away. And I knew if I went towards one of those little red balls, um, I'd be heading on that tight, n- nice southeasterly course. I'm learning where to, I, I got to remain concealed. I don't want to get caught. And I'm out on the prairie in the grasslands. And sometimes this is as much tree cover as I could find, you know, just a couple trees. Um, other times, uh, the, there's, the wind just blows across the prairie. There's nothing to stop the wind. So sometimes I'll just, um, you know, um, find a, a, a wind barricade somehow. Other times I'll, I'll camp in between, like, the hollow, in between hayfield, just to get just a little bit more concealment. Um, and I got hit by a blizzard at one point, and I just stayed in this abandoned barn for, for a couple nights. And the cows, 
they weren't so bad. I realized they were just a bunch of scaredy cats. It, it always happened the same way. Like every day I'd have to hop a barbed wire fence. I'd, I'd be doing that like 50 times a day. And I'd come across a herd like this. And they always reacted the same way. You know, they'd all be, you know, snacking on the grass. And then one would notice me and, you know, poke its head up. And it's got, it would stop chewing and it would just have a whole bunch of grass out of, coming out of the sides of it, its mouth. And then the whole herd would lift up their heads and just be staring at me, again, with just, like, grass coming out of their mouth like this. Um, one would freak out and just start running, and then the whole herd would freak out and start running with it. And, you know, you're just 170 pounds, you know, scaring off 80,000. You can't help but feel powerful. And the water, um, for water, I would, um, I, would, I would drink what the cows drink. I would drink from cow ponds and, and cow lakes and, and windmill springs. I didn't know what these things even were when I got out there, but they're windmill springs. The wind blows, and they pump up water from the ground into a trough um, where all the cows drink from it. And that's where I would get my, my water, too. And when, um, when I couldn't find any water, that's when I'd go knocking on doors. I'd go to that rancher's house and, and say, hey, can I have some water? And this was my opportunity to talk with folks about things like climate change and the Keystone XL and stuff like that. Um, and this guy, Carl from Alberta, he looked out into his, his yard and he pointed to a pipeline that was in the ground. And he said, that was the best thing that's ever happened to me. Um, he was paid generously for it, probably somewhere around $10,000, $20,000. Um, it never leaked. And this was pretty much the impression I got from folks in Canada, in Alberta and Saskatchewan. Um, the, oil, the oil industry is a huge part of those provincial economies. So this is just not out of the – a pipeline is not out of the ordinary. In the U.S., things changed a little bit. It became more of like a private property issue, like, you know, a Montanan, um, you know, he didn't want like a foreign corporation laying a pipeline in his in land that his great granddaddy had homesteaded 100 plus years ago. Um, Nebraska really stuck um, stuck out um, surprisingly, and that's because the Ogallala Aquifer underlies the entire state. That's where about eighty percent of the state gets its drinking water. That's how they irrigate their crops. So the state as a whole was very much opposed to the Keystone XL. I came across this guy. His name is uh, Rick Hammond. He was a, a rancher and a farmer, and um, he was not happy with the XL at all. He did not want that going through his land. So he decided to join me on his walk for about five days. Um, and he wanted to drum up as much negative press as he could for TransCanada and the Keystone XL. And it worked. Like We were interviewed every single day by local TV and local newspapers. And um, every day I was, uh, not every day, but I was interviewed by New York Times and Mother Jones and Huffington Post and NPR. And I, I wasn't like lighting the internet on fire or anything like that, but it was working and it's in my own small way. Um, but for most folks, I think the Keystone XL and climate change was just kind of like the furthest thing um, from their minds. Uh, and I, I kind of learned that, you know, when you're when you're talking to folks that are struggling to get by, um, when you know they're not sure where the where the money's coming from, and they're having trouble paying the bills, and they're worried about 
um, you know, having to leave their homes as so many Plains folks have have had to do in the past hundred years. They're not going to really worry about something that might affect them in 50 years or 100 years when they're worried about something today, something else. And I also learned that the Great Plains, um, it's a region that relies very heavily on fossil fuels. Just to get anywhere, you have to drive long distances. It's very agricultural. Anytime you know, you're using tractors in the agricultural industry, it's a very fossil fuel intensive industry. So you don't want to feel guilt every single time you turn that ignition. So it's, sometimes it's better just to deny the existence of, of something, to not believe it's true. And it's, it's just sad to say, but some people don't care about the environment simply because they can't afford to. So when I crossed into the U.S., um, I no longer felt like a... Um, a stranger to the prairie. I, I rather I, I began to feel at home on this simple, beautiful, underappreciated landscape. I'd grown accustomed to the chatter of coyotes outside my tent each night. I'd be walking and I'd come across these huge herds of deer and pronghorn, sometimes like 50 of them, just charging across the prairie and all leaping together at once over barbed wire fences. I remember I saw like 5,000 ducks ascend from a hayfield into the sky and just begin swirling like a, like a tornado about to touch down. And the, the clouds, I mean, the plain sky is just so huge. These are just like moving mountain chains just sailing across this deep blue sky. And even though it's in the center of one of the busiest, loudest, most populous countries on earth, the Great Plains may be one of the last places in America where you can feel truly, utterly alone. And I mean that in a magnificent way. And you know, out there, you're just like a, like a solitary skiff on this ocean of grass. Where are those two last pictures? Uh, I think this one might be Saskatchewan. Yeah. Um, and the one before it? The one before it? I don't know. Montana, probably. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think back to when I was a, a dishwasher with Liam, when I had that flash of inspiration, um, when he suggested we hike the Keystone XL and it was a crazy idea. And, you know, I think we all know what it's like to get a crazy idea like that. Maybe it's not about going on a long walk. Maybe it's, you know, starting a business or writing a novel or, or something like that. And, um, it's the, the idea's difficulty its improbability is what makes it crazy, but it's that which draws us to it at the same time. And that's why it's so easy to come up with reasons why not to do it. Um, and I remember when I was out here, I never, I never felt so at peace in my life. And I think it was partly because I listened to that flash of inspiration. I, I wasn't having an ex existential crisis like I am every other day. I wasn't thinking, you know, do I need a girlfriend or... Um, you know, should I go to nursing school or, you know, something like that. It was like I was exactly where I needed to be. And with that came a lot of peace of mind. So I think when we have those moments, those, those flashes of inspiration, they usually represent some aching existential need that's gone unfulfilled. 
And I've learned to hold on to and, and never forget those. You know, when you get that idea that energizes you and excites you like nothing else, but you can't, because you can't go wrong following through with something that your, your inner self is just clamoring for. And I've learned over and over again not to think of those flashes merely as crazy ideas, but as messages from fate calling upon you to do something grand. So I'd like to, I'd like to finish with one more passage. The prairie was as desolate as ever. I couldn't see any homes, and I crossed a rarely traveled gravel road every few miles. I hopped a barbed wire fence into a cow pasture and casually walked up to a herd of black Angus cows. These cows, I observed, weren't running away from me as they normally would. I yelled, get out of here, cows, and waved my poles in the air, trying to freak them out. But they moved only a few yards to the left and right creating a narrow corridor which I had no choice but to walk through. The land was flat except for a gentle downward slope that led to a creek that had dried up. I walked down the slope, and in the grassy creek bed there was another dozen cows staring at me. The cows that I had just passed had gathered and were following me down the hill. I had moving cows behind me and motionless cows in front of me. My heart thumped. My pulse raced. I became unseasonably sweaty. I'd just taken a hit of adrenaline. All the pains and sores that I had been walking with were completely forgotten, and I now had one and only one aim. Get away from these cows! I was surrounded, and then I heard it. It was a rolling thunder, a gurgle from the skies, the sort that would bring a family out to the front porch to watch a summer thunderstorm. I took off at a jog. I looked back for a moment, one blip of a second, and caught a glimpse of the most terrifying, amazing, makes-my-legs-wobbly thing I'd ever set my eyes on. It was a tidal wave of black muscle pouring down the hill, a horde of black Angus cows just ten yards behind me, their hooves launching tufts of grass into the air, their huge bodies moving across the treeless prairie in a thunderous, ground-shaking roar. The worst of my fears had come true. I was being attacked by cows. (laughs) There was only one word on my mind which communicated itself to me in a not-so-hushed tone of not-so-poised determination. Run. (laughs) Thank you. Uh, If you have any questions, I'd I'd love them. Did you get run down by the cows? I'm still here, so uh, (laughs) I did not get run down by the cows. I ran probably the, the... fastest run of my life. I dropped my backpack and threw my poles and it just took off. And they went back for them? Or? And did I go back for them? Yeah, because that was like around dusk and it was winter, so I needed my sleeping bag and tent. Um, so I just kind of like walked the edge of um, the barbed wire fence and tried to get away and then snuck in and grabbed them. It's funny when I tell um, my Nebraska rancher friends now about this, they just laugh at me. Um, they just say, they were just curious, you know, they're not gonna, they're not gonna kill you or anything like that. But at that time, those cows had murder in their eyes. How long did it take me? It took me four and a half months, um, exactly 136 days. How much did it cost me? It cost me more than I would have liked, for sure. Um, I mean, like, you know, if you count the iPad and all of that um, camping equipment and stuff like that, 
I think it cost me about seven thousand dollars. Yeah. How did I find myself in Dead Horse? That's like worth a book in its, of its own. Um, so the, I should go into my previous book for a second. Um, so I uh, was living, I was going to school at Duke University, and I was trying to not go into student debt. So I was living in my van, and I just had this idea after I graduated to write a book about it. So I, I also wanted to kind of go back into my Past to write this book, and I wanted to to talk about student debt as a whole. And I previously I had thirty two grand in student debt, and I moved up to Alaska and um, started paying it off working odd jobs in, in places like Dead Horse. So I wanted to live up to love, live up in Alaska as I'm writing this book. And um, I found a literary agent, and the, I, when I finished my first chapter of this book, I was all excited, and I sent him this first chapter. And uh, he stopped returning my phone calls and emails. Um, yeah, and uh, I, I ran out of money, and I needed to wash dishes to to get by. So that's how I wound up there. And eventually, Walden on Wheels became a thing, and that's how I got out of there. How did your thoughts or feelings about the pipeline change by the time you ended the trip? Yeah, how did my thoughts about the pipelines change? As an environmentalist, I walked in... Uh, into this journey with with prejudices, for sure. I didn't like the idea of another pipeline when we should be thinking about renewables and stuff like that. We shouldn't be going to some outmoded, archaic conveyance of energy. Yet at the same time, you know, I knew nothing about the Great Plains. I knew nothing about how pipelines affected landowners. I didn't know what their thoughts were. So I wanted to go into this project with an open mind, um, and kind of nuance my opinion a little bit based on my interactions with folks. By the end, my opinion of the pipeline was even worse. It just made no sense to me because, yes, some landowners, you know, they're getting paid a little bit. They're, it's helping them get by. But this, this, doesn't, this isn't like an economic boon, as pipeline companies would, would have you believe. I walked several hundred miles of pre-existing pipelines that were set to parallel the Keystone XL. And guess how many workers I saw out there when I was walking these pipelines? Zero. Because once you have these pipelines in the ground, there's no more jobs. The State Department projected there'd be about 35 permanent jobs for the Keystone XL. All this, about half of this oil is being sent to markets overseas, so it's not really all winding up in our cars and planes and stuff like that. And when I saw the tar sands of northern Alberta, there's almost nothing you could that would justify that in my mind. And I'm just very concerned about climate change. So all those factors in, I'm happy it, it died. But it died in, in, in November 2015 when um, Obama rejected it. However, it can be re- resurrected from the dead depending on who gets in office this fall. I've been uh, reading your blog since you were at Duke, um, and I'm wondering what one of your next projects. Do you have some things in mind? Yeah, yeah. Well, What's my next project? I got a um, crazy idea, um, far more ambitious than than either. Um, And and don't tell anybody because I haven't pitched it yet. Uh, But um, it it would be kind of like traveling through time. And I think I figured out a way how to do it. Um, I'm, I'm interested in experiencing 
all of human history in one given year. So I, I'm thinking like spend like three months living as a hunter gatherer, go to like an African tribe and, and live with them. Then there's um and then the Neolithic revolution happened about 13,000 years ago where we transitioned into farming. So I'd go live with some primitive farmers in uh, Nepal or India where that's, where that stuff's still going on. Um, then is the, then it's the uh, age of artisans when we begin to um, have civilizations and towns and there's carpenters and stuff and like blacksmith. And right now there's this ninth century monastery being built in Germany um, with all ninth century tools. So it's like, I got to go do that for three months and keep experiencing each age and just be this wild journey through time. And I think it would just lend a whole bunch of insights into what we had and what we, what we lost and what we've gotten. And um, I'm, I'm, I'm an environmental nut, so I'm, I'm sure I'll find a way to tie that in there. Um, but I think, I think that would be a winner. Absolutely. Um, the Great Plains Trail is just this magnificent idea. Um, it's a trail that very closely parallels this my route, and this will um, be part of the, the mega trail tradition in the U.S., the Pacific Crest and Continental Divide and Appalachian, and there's nothing going on in the middle of the country. So this guy, Steve Myers, he's actually in the audience right now. Nice to see you, Steve. Um, he's creating this, um, this mega trail, about 1,700 miles and it'll be very much like those other ones. And I think that's just a fabulous idea because no one gets to go on the Great Plains. No one, when we think of Great Plains, and it might be di- different for Colorado folks because we're so close to them. But um, anyone else, you think of Great Plains, you think of that uh, I-70 drive through Kansas. <laughs> Boring, flat, windy, nothing. But when you walk the plains, which I certainly have, it is one of the most mesmerizing landscapes on this earth. And I think if people got out on them and saw them, they'd begin to appreciate them and care about them and be stewards of them. Because there's a whole bunch of ecological um, stuff going on in them. The, the, the prairie dogs have 1% of the territory that they had 100, 200 years ago. You know, there's, there's very few herds of wild buffalo anymore. You know, they're just kind of in... Um, small national parks and stuff like that. So, and, and, and what's going on in Nebraska and other states uh, in the Corn Belt, when corn prices are high, they're turning marginal farmland, which are like um, the sandhills and just, just stuff that wasn't meant for farming, they're turning it into cornfields. So you're losing a lot of these native grasslands and stuff like that. You're, you're losing um, habitat for birds and, and, and insects and stuff like this. And all this is happening, and the country just doesn't care. And it's because we're not getting out there. So the Great Plains Trail is, is something I'm very passionate about. And there's also something going on in Montana called the American Prairie Reserve, which is another fantastic idea. This is like going to be a private national park um um, i think it's national geographics involved and the wwf is involved and they're buying up a whole bunch of public land and piecing together this massive area that they hope to be will will be larger than yellowstone national park and they've reintroduced buffalo to the area and uh, yeah and this just happened like the past five or six years and they're doing a great job
Uh, yeah. Um, did I have any issues with trespassing? Um, pretty much all the land was private. I wasn't walking any public land. There were some occasions when I was taking roads, but for the most part, I was trespassing. And it was easier than I thought it would be because you saw some of these fields on here. Sometimes a, a rancher in Alberta or Saskatchewan or Montana, they own upwards of 60,000 acres, which is like the size of metropolitan Seattle. So these are huge areas. I'm not seeing the homes. I'm not seeing the, um, the people who own it. I'm, I, it feels like I'm just walking over a national park. Um, there, and I have to say, like I was just quite amazed with the treatment I got from folks um, all the way down to Texas. And I really did see nothing but kindness and generosity. In Kansas, I was taking a lot of roads and um, some people would see me and they'd come back like half an hour later and hand me out of their window a bag of McDonald's that they went and, and bought for me. You know, and you know, I had a big beard and a backpack, and no one has ever walked these roads before. Um, oftentimes, they you know try to give me money, um, and when I knocked on doors to get water, um, they'd say, "Hey, do you want to have dinner?" And "Hey, do you want to sleep on my couch?" And this was um, this was my experience all the way down. I, I will tell one negative story um, in Nebraska. I was walking roads at the time, and I was. Uh, in this gas station eating um, some yogurt and a banana. And I look behind me and there's a deputy standing right behind me. And he says, I have to ship you out of the county. And I'm like, what? For what? And um, he says, you know, let's get in the car and I'll tell you all about it. And so I, I, I get in the back of his patrol car. I'm surrounded by Cage. And um, he says, I got two calls from locals. And they came home and they remembered their doors being locked, but they were unlocked and that their dogs had been let out. So I was being accused of being the dog liberator of <laughs> Petersburg, Nebraska. Um, so I walked 1,700 miles across the country, except for those 17 that I was <laughs> shipped out of Boone County, Nebraska. When you let the dogs out. When, when I let the dogs out. I, that was a joke I forgot to tell in the book. Thank <laughs> Yeah, were, were people that friendly, even when I told them about I was anti-Keystone X? I was very, oh boy, it was, that was delicate. I had to handle that very delicately because this is a very conservative part of the country. They're inviting me into their homes. I can't just go off on some crazy left-wing environmental, you know, screech, um, so in those situations, I kind of thought of myself just more as a journalist, like keep my opinions out of this. I want to know what your opinion is um, and stuff like that. And, and I always, I always uh, when I treated them with respect that way, I, I got it in return. And oftentimes my opinion would be drawn out. And I was just always unhappy with how those conversations went because climate change is just such a tough thing to talk about, especially when you're not a scientist or anything like that. And emotions are bound up in it. And I just, I, I felt like I had a dedication, I had, had a duty to myself to give a good opinion, a duty to the truth, to stick up for what I believed in. And I was always really upset, but like looking back on those, I don't think about them with such disappointment anymore. Cause I remember 
when I said I was an environmentalist, they just looked at me like I was a freak, like I was like an extremist. And like all I care about is like clean air and clean water. Um, and when I explained that I'm from Niagara Falls and that Love Canal was four miles from my home, they completely got it. So I was able to show them that you can be an environmentalist for a legitimate and good reason. And looking back, I think that was a really important dialogue I had with a number of people. Oh, sorry. Scariest experience with another person. Uh, well, let me remark on the animals. First of all, I was chased by a number. In Alberta, I was chased by a moose. Um, and I, I was just like running across the prairie towards a tree, hoping some like my ancestors were monkeys, cl- tree climbing instincts would just like instantaneously kick in. Luckily, I didn't come to that. Um, and then I had the cow stampede in South Dakota. And then I had Oklahoma was awful. I was I was chased by dogs every single day in Oklahoma, and it was it was interesting, um, like looking at the character of the dogs from the start of the trip to the to the end. Um, you know, like up in Alberta or Montana or Nebraska, it's just like some sleepy, overweight Labrador. And then, like when I got into Oklahoma, it was just they they got savage. Um, like they were like. You know, often like more aggressive breeds like pit bulls and Rottweilers and stuff like that. And I know, you know, there's a lot of good dogs of those breeds. But when they're ill-treated and just kind of forgotten about, you know, they can they can be really scary. So I had that bear spray kind of just like in the bottom of my pack for the most part of my trip. But in Oklahoma, I had the cap off and that thing ready to go literally from start to finish. Um, as for folks... Um, not not so much not not there there was another time in Oklahoma um I was in this town called Atoka which was very poor and typically when I'd be walking through towns I'd go straight to a church um and ask if I could set up my tent on their their lawn and I'm not a religious person and I was really impressed and taken and moved by just how courteous and generous these churches were all along the way um and the 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 Pastor said that uh, he's got some, his, his aunt has some land. And, you know, it was like a double wide propped up on cement blocks. And, you know, it was a very poor area. But I thought, okay, I'll just camp back there. And at two in the morning, I had this dog like circling my tent and sniffing it. And I felt safe because I was in a tent. So I just kind of looked out one of the portholes of my tent and I saw this man walking straight towards my tent at two in the morning and he was carrying something huge it looked like a medieval weapon um, or a shovel or something and you know you always met imagine yourself like being like bruce willis in a moment like that you know like doing something courageous um i just i just stood there paralyzed like he could have just clunked me right over the head if he wanted to um but nothing came of that he just walked right past the tent just within a few few feet of it, but it, it terrified me for sure. Um, first of all, I grew up on a California Kansas, so I, I like what you said about the beauty being unappreciated and the way you described it. That really spoke to my heart. Thank you. Um, my question is, what did your feet look like at the end of the trip? What did my feet look like? My feet looked actually pretty normal. Um, <laughs> Uh, after about the first month or so, no more blisters, none, none, none of that. They got used to it. And I kind of imagined 
my feet just being like this hard cheese-like callus by the end. But they were kind of smooth. They, they, look, they looked okay, surprisingly, <laughs> which you can't say about my feet um, quite often. Gotcha. Um, question is, uh, um, what about resistance to pipelines? Has the Keystone XL kind of drawn away the resistance? I think I think the exact opposite, actually. I think we're seeing a, um, a new age in pipeline resistance. Uh, let's just think about pipelines for one second. It's a boring subject, but... Um, we've been building oil pipelines since the 1860s. The first was a wooden gutter in West Virginia. Right now, we have 1.7 million miles of pipelines, either oil or gas. So pipelines, for up until very recently, have been incredibly boring and ordinary and normal. What is not normal is resisting and opposing a pipeline. The Keystone XL opposition was very, very strange, and getting a pipeline rejection like this was very, very strange. So I'm actually optimistic because we're seeing this happen in other parts. Um, The bluegrass pipeline in Kentucky was just rejected, and that was um, over private property issues. Um, The Northeast Energy Direct pipeline was just uh, rejected a week ago, and that goes uh, bringing fracking gas from Pennsylvania and New York through New England. Every single pipeline that's being built right now, maybe not every single, but a lot, like um, the Dakota Access Pipeline, which goes from North Dakota to Iowa, they are being um, resisted and opposed by local environmental groups who feel like they can win. Um, So I I see it very differently. It's built energy. And maybe the whole climate change movement isn't focused on one pipeline um, as much, but you have a lot more local groups who feel empowered and emboldened and you know i I think it's very good fracking is unpopular um coal is on its way out we're suddenly questioning this ordinary conveyance of energy i think we're seeing the death of fossil fuels albeit at a uh, at a crawl i did i did not see too much fracking um no Yeah, so what's the response in Alberta with the tar sands and whatnot? There's, there's been a lot of resistance. A lot of the native communities are very outspoken. They are dying in unprecedented numbers because of the toxic pollution in their river system. They can't hunt anymore, things like that. Um, and I, th- I think Alberta has a new, um, what do you call it, kind of their, their governor yeah he's uh, he or she is um very liberal and um kind of speaking to like a new age for alberta environmentalism so things are changing but they're still charging away and developing and it keeps getting bigger and bigger things like rejecting the keystone xl which would have brought another 830,000 gallons a day certainly certainly helps um slow them down 
Um, no, they're not necessarily on native land, but they're near um, native villages. The Athabasca River, that's where they're getting all their fresh water to, to use in their refinery. Um, a lot of the tailings is leaking back in to this Athabasca River, which runs through several Native American um, villages. And Um, how, how does yeah? How does Canada treat their Native American populations? I think generally better. I think um, I think they have larger reservations and they win court battles all the time and stuff like that. There is a lot of racism. I remember I remember I got into one bar and someone had seen me walking down the road and they were like, "I thought you were a native vagrant," and the whole bar just started laughing. You know. Um, there, it, I think there's a lot more racism towards Native Americans in Canada than there is in the U.S. Actually, so they are on reservations. They are on, typically. I'm, I'm no expert, so I can't speak for the country as a whole. How many miles did I do each day? Um, by the end, I was doing 20, 25 miles a day. I was in good hiking shape, but. Um, but at, at the start, um, because of all my injuries and stuff like that, I was sometimes averaging like eight, nine, ten. So. How, heavy How heavy was my pack? About forty-five pounds. Did you make your pack, or did you just buy one? I bought one here in Denver. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, folks. I really appreciate you coming. You guys were a blast. Thank you. That's all for tonight's author on tour. I'm Darren Fode, and we have been podcasting live from the Tattered Cover Bookstore in Denver, Colorado. Stay pod-tuned in the coming weeks as we podcast Authors on Tour.